Good morning, buenos dias. My name is Gianluca Cueva, and over the past several years here at EBF, I've been able to serve in children's ministry as a pastoral apprentice and now co-lead an ethos group. And this morning, it is my honor and very excited to be able to bring the word to us this morning again. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Uh, we're really happy that you've decided to spend your Sunday morning with us. We're currently in the middle of a sermon series in the book of John, and we're going through the seven I am statements that Jesus proclaims. So far, we have covered I am the bread of life and I am the door. Today, we will cover I am the good shepherd. And if you were here last week, you heard Brady preach on the first half of John 10, reminding us that as believers, we are safe, satisfied, and have abundant life in Christ, the protector and only way to God, because he himself is God. And as Brady said last week, these two sermons are actually connected. And so today we're going to finish that, um, that one chapter and focus on the Good Shepherd. But before we do this, let's go to a word of prayer. Father God, you are the great I am. You are holy and majestic and above all things. My mind, the neurons in my head cannot comprehend you. My voice, my vocal cords fall short of being able to sing your glory and your praise. And my heart is too weak to be able to even come close to the affections that I should have for your great love. I am broken and yet your Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit goes through me, is in me, and in us, and it goes forward, Lord, in your people, and is working in your people. And that is my hope. So I pray that you hide me today, and that you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. She would wake up early in the morning put on her sandals, and walked the short, dusty path, a dusty path she had come to walk every single day. She would lead them through a field and hills after she had called them out from the gate. Terrain she had come to know, walking up and down. She would then bring them to a specific field, the same field she visited every day. Why? Well, there was a well in that field, one for her flock to be able to come and drink among the other flocks. She was a caretaker, a defender, and a leader. She was a shepherdess, and her name was Rachel. Though we lack the specific details, Genesis 29 makes it clear that Rachel was a shepherdess for her father. Though shepherding culture is foreign to most of us today, Middle Eastern shepherding culture in Jesus' time was an everyday feature of the Jewish life. This was a tasking, grueling, and at times dangerous vocation. A vocation that women and men took up in Scripture, from men like David to women like Zipporah, Moses' wife. Shepherds and shepherdesses can be found in Scripture. 
However, not only are these examples of this vocation found in Scripture, but the vocation of shepherding is then picked up in the Bible and used as a theme. And it soon describes God's leaders, God's people's leaders, such as King David, who was not only a shepherd himself, but he shepherded and led the people of God. But perhaps the most prominent form of this theme is God as shepherd, as can be seen in Genesis 48 or Numbers 27, Psalm 23, as we read, or Ezekiel 34. See, our passage today is part of this biblical theme of shepherding. It traces from Genesis to Revelation, and in a way, our passage today is the crescendo of that theme. Not only that, but what makes this passage unique is that it in some ways has Ezekiel 34 in mind. Like a new musician that takes the beats from a previous song and changes the lyrics, think Vanilla Ice, Ice Ice Baby stealing from David Bowie, or Cardi B borrowing from Pete Rodriguez, I like it like that. And if you didn't know, well, now you know. The tune and beats of these verses in John 10 are similar to those in Ezekiel 34. Some of the words are just a little different. We won't go too deep into Ezekiel 34, but because it is still so important to our text, I will make mention of it throughout just so we can understand the depths of God's word this morning. Therefore, in our passage today, we will see that although several shepherds have come before and several shepherds, several under-shepherds will go after Jesus is the one true shepherd after God's own heart. This will play itself out in three different relationships. First, it will show us that God, the good shepherd, will not leave you. Two, it shows that the good shepherd cares for one flock from many folds. And finally, the good shepherd lays down his life for you. So let us turn to the first of these three relationships, the shepherd and the hired hands. This first relationship will remind us that the good shepherd will not leave you. Look at verses 11 and 13 with me. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. In these verses, Jesus is introducing himself as the good shepherd. However, he doesn't give us too much information about who he is as the good shepherd. Instead, he spends most of his time doing what? Describing the hired hands. What Jesus is doing is he is telling us who he is by telling us who he is not, the hired hands. In other words, by looking at this section, we will know more about Jesus, the good shepherd, by knowing who he is not, contrasted to the hired hands. So who are these hired hands? First, it's important for us to note that these hired hands were not necessarily wicked or evil. They are not described as the thieves and robbers in the previous verses. Also, though not explicit in this text, these hired hands are not the under-shepherds those that are charged to look after the local churches, as we see in 1 Peter 5, what we today just call pastors. Under-shepherds and pastors, which EBF has been blessed with over the years. See, what truly describes the hired hand is that they are more concerned with themselves than with the sheep. 
especially in times of danger. Look at the text. Verse 12 tells us that in the face of danger, the wolf, the hired hand cares more for themselves than they do the sheep. And what do they do? They run away. They do not make good shepherds. As a matter of fact, that is why they run away because they are not shepherds at all. Verses 12 and 13 are straining and repeating to tell us why the hired hands run away. Look, he is a hired hand, not a shepherd. He does not own the sheep. He is a hired hand. He cares not for the sheep. Shepherds care for the sheep. Hired hands flee. Remember the context of this passage, which Brady did a great job last week? Jesus has just healed a man born blind. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, have gotten upset with him. And although it's not certain how much time has passed since that event in Jesus' words now, the Pharisees who kicked out the blind man are who our commentators have said that they are the ones who are in view here. It is these religious leaders, the Pharisees, who are the hired hands that Jesus is calling out. They were charged with the care of God's people, but instead they cared more for themselves when danger came and they abandoned the sheep. The context especially highlights that they would leave the most vulnerable, the poor and oppressed. And unfortunately, the Old Testament is full of examples when this would happen. And as mentioned earlier, this is where I'll refer to Ezekiel 34. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read verses 4 and 5 specifically. This is God condemning the false shepherds of Israel. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, The injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Verse 5, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. Did you hear, especially verse 5, the hired hand was gone, there was no shepherd, the beast, the wolf came, and the sheep were scattered? Christ here is contrasting himself with the hired hands as he is the only true and good shepherd. So, what does this mean for us today? Remember who this text is speaking about. The text does not speak to pagan Hellenistic rulers and leaders, but to the very Jewish leaders and rulers of the time. Therefore, the application is much more personable and therefore more difficult. And in a way, EBF, this application could fall on us. See, hired hands, remember, they're not necessarily evil or wicked. They're just more focused on themselves than the sheep. So who are we today modeling as a church? Are we more like the hired hands or our good shepherd? Are we looking out for ourselves? or for the sheep of God. EBF, we are in a season where it would be easy to just look out for ourselves and not others. When danger and trouble comes our way, are we willing to lay down our lives for the sake of God's people? Saints, do not grow weary of doing good, especially for those of the household of faith. Do not be like the hired hands and flee the flock. Let us continue to grow in Christ's likeness as we look to our good shepherd as an example and love the sheep. And as our elders have told us, 
Let us be strong and steadfast together by serving and trusting our sovereign God. And also, remember that even though you are called to model the good shepherd, we are not the ultimate shepherd. Christ is, and you can rest in that truth. He will sustain you in your moments of despair and hurt. Christ will not abandon you. Christ will not ghost you. He's no flake. Christ and Christ alone will empower you, and the wolves will come. In the moments when it seems like the wolves of anxiety, depression, and pain come into your isolation, Christ is already there with you. Moreover, he laid down his life for you. He is the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. And again, we see this very phrase picked up in verse 14 again. So let's look back to the text. This time, please read verses 14 and 15 with me. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. These verses are now speaking to the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. And through this relationship, we will see that the good shepherd cares for one flock from many folds. And the first thing we notice is that the good shepherd knows the sheep. It says it right there in our text. But what kind of knowledge is this? Is it a kind of relational knowledge? Perhaps it's an academic knowledge? Well, thankfully, the next verse helps answer this question. As the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Church, this is an incredible statement. This is speaking to the very depths of God, this inner Trinitarian community that is our God. And as one commenter states, this may not be speaking to mutual knowledge, the kind that the Father and the Son share, and the one that we and the Son share, but this is speaking to mutual intimacy. What an incredible truth. Look at the intimacy and deep care we have in Christ, which is then what makes verse 16 so shocking for the original Jewish hearers. Look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So who are those sheep not of this fold. Again, some commentators seem to agree that although the Jews may have thought that this may have referred to the Israelites in the diaspora as they were scattered across the country, I mean, across the Middle East, it is actually the Gentiles who were in view here. That's us. We're the Gentiles. And if we look at the context in the previous verses and the preceding verses, Jesus' audience here are the Jews. Therefore, it would make sense, and I agree with the commentators, that those not of this fold are not Jews, but Gentiles. And you may be asking yourself, well, so, so what? What is actually shocking about this statement? See, the original hearers, the Jewish Israelites, would agree that they and Yahweh, the great I Am, have a special and intimate relationship. But that this relationship is now including Gentiles as well? 
See, Jews at that time would have looked down at Gentiles as pagans, sinners, and idolaters. The idea of being one flock with them would have been beyond them. However, looking back again at Ezekiel 34, this was God's plan all along. Verses 11 through 13 read, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of cloud and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. God said he would do this. And now the good shepherd is fulfilling this promise. He is bringing and calling out sheep from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And this is necessary. It is not optional or plan B. This was not an afterthought or just a good idea. Look at the text. The good shepherd must do this. One translation even says he is behooved to do this. See, this is central to the good shepherd's mission. And to what end? Well, let's look back at the text. Verse 16 says, to listen to his voice and to be one. God's purpose and vision is to make Jews and Gentiles one flock under one shepherd. But again, let's, let's go back to, let's pay a close, close attention to the text. Notice what it does not say. It does not say one fold, but it says one flock. What are some of these folds then? Commenting on this, theologian D.A. Carson notes that in this context, Jesus is calling sheep out of the sheepfolds of Judaism. See, not flock. The gospel is calling Jews and Gentiles from their folds and inviting them into the flock of God, the kingdom of God, to live as one under one shepherd. The mission is to the folds, and the vision is unity in the flock. So, how can we, therefore, partake in this mission and this vision? Regarding the shepherd's mission, EBF supports and partners with different missionaries that are joining the good shepherd as he goes and brings his sheep from other folds into his kingdom. So I would ask you today, are we praying for these women and men? Please do not grow weary of being on your knees for them. And what does it look like for, us, for those of us who aren't sent? <clears throat> what does mission look like for us when we don't necessarily go to the nations, but when the nations come to us? See, studies say that 25% or higher of the U.S. population today are immigrants and their children. That is an incredible number. How will we respond to God's creative dislocation around the globe? One where unreached people groups are for the first time hearing the gospel because of it. Because they couldn't hear it in their own country, but they are coming here and hearing it for the first time. We may need to revive a unique kind of way to do missions. A type of diaspora missions, missiology way of doing 
How will we be hospitable to the sojourner and the immigrant that does not yet know Christ? How will we go beyond mere hospitality with brothers and sisters of the faith and be a united church familia, family, where everyone has a seat at the table? Which leads us to the vision of the shepherd, a united flock. The text tells us again that the sheep from the fold will listen to the shepherd's voice. They will listen to God's voice, the word of God, the scriptures. So I ask you today, when you think about the Bible, what do you think about? One theologian, Kevin Van Hooser, proposes that the texts of scripture have one singular meaning, but that it is too rich for just one cultural perspective to understand. Instead, we need a variety of individuals and cultural perspectives to shed light on the text. He calls this Pentecostal plurality. See, the word of God is too rich and our God is too glorious for just one culture or tradition, be it Reformed, Liberation, Puritan, Orthodox, or Patristic, to describe him. We therefore need to recognize that we all belong to a cultural context and theological tradition and that it's in our unity of our diversity that we bring the most glory to the one true shepherd. One analogy can put it this way. It's like a choir. Each choir has four basic ranges, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. To have a good choir, you have each group go into a separate room and practice their own part until they've been able to master that, and then they can come together and sing as a unit, in harmony as a choir. However, sometimes you run into problems. Maybe the bass is taking over too much. Maybe the alto needs to be brought in a little more. Or perhaps the tenor needs to go back and spend more time in the practice room. Or maybe each group is spending too much time in each of their practice rooms and not actually coming together to practice as a choir, practicing to sing in harmony. See, we each have a tradition and a culture that is part of a larger choir. And just like a choir that would only have sopranos or basses, it could sound perfect, and yet it will still not be as beautiful as a choir that has all voices from all ranges singing together in harmony. This is our Good Shepherd's mission and vision. And it's a big vision and mission. And it can feel overwhelming. I know that. However, there are good news. Our Good Shepherd is glorious and there is none like him. And this is our third point. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for you. Let's look at the next verses. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
These last verses are no longer about the sheep or the hired hands. We're not even in the picture anymore. It's about the shepherd and the father. And this relationship, in a way, has already been introduced in verse 15. The knowledge and intimacy and love the father and the son share is on display here. However, we need to note that just because Jesus obeys the Father perfectly doesn't mean that he wins the Father's approval. Yes, verse 18 speaks to the charge that the Father has given to Christ, but the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Not because the Son obeys, it is not conditional, but the perfect obedience of the Son shows the love between the Father and the Son. It is this love that makes salvation possible for us. A love that is after God's own heart. So what makes Jesus the good shepherd? These last verses expound on this answer in which has actually already been mentioned throughout this whole passage. What makes Jesus the good shepherd? Jesus is the good shepherd, the one true shepherd, because he lays down his life for the sheep. Look through verses 11, 15, and now 17. The phrase, I lay down my life, has been woven throughout this whole section. Whenever a biblical author begins to repeat a word or a phrase, it's him saying, pay attention to this. And what else could this point to but to the cross? See, Jesus did not die simply as a grand gesture of his love, as one commentator says. He did not jump off a cliff shouting his love for us. No, Jesus died because we were in mortal danger. Jesus died for us, for the sheep, and this is good news. Many shepherds came before Christ, but they abandoned the sheep. Jesus fulfills the words of Ezekiel 34, 23, when it says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them, and be their shepherd. The incarnate Jesus is the better David. Christ alone is the shepherd after God's own heart. But moreover, Jesus not only speaks to laying down his life, but also to taking it back up again, his resurrection. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus died for the purpose to resurrect again. How can Jesus say this? Who says that they will die dead, cease living, so that they may take their life up again? No man, no shepherd can say this. Yet Jesus can say this because he alone is the God-man. Jesus has the authority, the power, and dominion to lay down his life and take it back up again because he himself is God. And verse 18 is resoundly and repeatedly reminding us of Christ's power and authority. This whole verse's emphasis is that it is Christ and Christ alone who chooses to lay down his life and take it back up again. I mean, look at the repetition of the first-person pronouns, I, my, I. And in the original language, this is even made more apparent. See, Jesus is the good shepherd because Jesus is himself God. No one takes his life. He does this of his own accord. 
Jesus alone had the power and authority to be crucified and resurrected. And that's why Ezekiel 34, 15 through 16 can again say, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares who? The Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Jesus is God. In Christ, we see the lineage of David and God himself be the shepherd of his people. Jesus is the God-man. Because you see, it may have been Judas that betrayed him, but it was because Jesus sent him to do it. And it may have been the Pharisees that hid him and plucked his beard, but it was because Jesus did not call on a legion of angels to come defend him. And it may have been the crowds that cried, crucify him, but it was foretold long ago that he would bear our iniquities on the cross. And it may have been Pilate who condemned him and thought he had the authority to release him or crucify him. But it was Christ alone who had the authority and power to lay down his life and take it back up again. And it may have been the Roman soldiers who pierced his hands in his sides, but it was because he placed his hands in his sides on that cross to bear our iniquities and our sins. We have no passive savior or shepherd, EBF. Jesus, our good and true shepherd, is God incarnate and the shepherd of our souls. He bore our iniquities on the cross and is reconciling all things to himself. He loves you and he loves us. And if you're in Christ, this is the sure ground upon which we stand. That which we put our faith and trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Your sins are no more you have life everlasting, and you have received the ministry of reconciliation. And if you do not yet know Christ this morning, know that he loves you and has made a way for you. He is calling all to turn, repent, and place their faith in him. Jesus, the good shepherd, loves you. So what does this passage leave us with today? you've heard me preach before, you know I like to talk about two things. South Florida, or mi lenguaje, my language, Spanish, Espanol. And I was preparing for this sermon, I was reading different translations on this passage. And one of those translations was in Spanish. Do you know what the word for shepherd is in Spanish? Pastor. El buen pastor, the good shepherd. And that sounds familiar. It's because in Spanish, the word for pastor and shepherd, it's pastor, it's pastor, it's the same. And I know that we're in a unique season right now, church family. It's been a long and trying and difficult one for me personally. And perhaps it has been for some of you as well. But I couldn't help thinking that as we rightfully continue to pray, search, and press into finding a new lead pastor, we have had, currently do, and will forever have a good pastor, shepherd. He has searched us individually from other folds and brought us to his flock. 
he has and continues to shepherd us both individually and as a corporate body. He will continue to shepherd you as you sojourn from EBF and while you sojourn at EBF. He loves us, he loves this church, and he is guiding this church. Let us pray. Father Nuestro, Father God, you are sovereign above all things. You are the great I am, and we are but sheep of your flock. And yet somehow, the great I am chooses to shepherd us, and not only that, die for us and come back to life so that you could continue to shepherd us, not just in Jesus' day, but today and every moment. I thank you for that truth. I thank you for your goodness. Help us to come closer and closer to grasping this deep love that you have for us. We love you and we thank you. And we pray this all. In Jesus' name, amen.